Today's guest talks about his students as being able to engage in personal growth, to stretch beyond their perceived boundaries of thought and expression. But what does he mean by this, and what tools do his students use? Hello, everyone. My name is Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk, and delighted to introduce you to today's guest, who is David Ulrich. David is a professor and co-director of Pacific New Media Foundation in Honolulu. He is a teacher, a workshop presenter, and an active photographer, as well as the author of the topic of today's conversation, Zen Camera, Creative Awakening with a Daily Practice in Photography. David Ulrich, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Pamela. Well, let me ask you this. You know, the word Zen is now sort of a part of our vocabulary, and we attach all kinds of things to Zen, but camera is not one of them. So <laughs> help me understand that. Well, Zen is a tradition of expanding awareness of personal growth, and I think any art form can do the same thing. Photography offers us many benefits. It offers us a powerful way to engage creativity. It offers us a more attentive to the moment. After all, photography deals in the currency of moments. It also offers a more intangible benefit. <clears throat> people strive and people search for their own authentic vision. So in a way, it helps us get closer to ourselves, to who we really are. I, I think very important today is it helps make us much more aware of the world surrounding us. Well, you know, that might be the good news and the bad news. Let me, let me just say this. I know that we are talking <laughs> to you, and you are in Honolulu. So every time it sounds like... Um, Every now and then it sounds like we may be losing you a bit, but I think that's just a function of where you are and where we are. So I just want the listeners to know not to worry. It's not their device. Now, Yes, and unfortunately, I'm on a cell phone and I don't have a landline. Well, as do more and more people. So I think you're right in there right. with m most of the world. Right. When, when you talk about, um, again... I'm really fascinated by the concept of Zen and a camera. So mm -hmm. the the feeling, Zen is about, if I understand it correctly, really being kind of free of attachment. Is that a fair statement? I think that's a fair statement. I certainly think that's one of the major aims of the Zen tradition, is to be free of attachment and to be more present, to be more present to the moment and more present to ourselves and to what's around us. I think that's, and I think there's many other aims, but those are the ones that I'm focusing on. So if one is free of attachment when it comes to photography, does that mean that one is free of expectations about what to shoot or what that shot will actually come to be? Well, what I teach my students is, it's very difficult to become free of expectation or free of attachment, but you can certainly 
put that in one side of the brain. And in the other side of your brain, you can be open and open to the unfolding moment and open to um, what is your vision and what is your subject matter that resonates with who you are. I think one of the ways that photography uh, if supports our attachments, if you will, is this whole phenomenon of cell phone selfies. You know, where we're more concerned with our appearance, we're more concerned with seeking acknowledgement and validation, when the camera really can be a very powerful tool for interacting with the outer world and interacting with other people. Versus interacting with your own face. <laughs> right. <laughs> interacting with your own face or, or the meal you just ordered or whatever. Right. Yes. Right. I've never quite figured out the the meal pictures, but that's another conversation. Right, right. How right. do you know when your students have really taken hold of what it is you're trying to teach them? It's a very curious thing. In being a photography teacher, you can often tell whose images are whose by the second class. Huh. Everybody has a particular way of seeing the world, a particular outlook, a particular way of handling form or color, and it's visible in their work. I see it, but they don't see it right away. So the real quest for self-knowledge is they themselves need to see what is unique and distinctive about their way of seeing the world. And I've become excited and gratified when their images start to reflect who they are more directly, when they start to move away from what we might call cliched subject matter, subjects, kittens, etc. I wonder, David, if you have a student who comes to mind or who re whose work really said to you that they were understanding the concepts that you were teaching, that in their shifting, uh, they really blossomed in a way that you had hoped. I, I want our listeners to get a sense of the change in, in your students' level of awareness from day one to actually the close of the class. Well, I'm not going to focus on one student. I'm going to focus on a kind of cluster of students and a particular problem. Okay. Many students, many students come to class, you know, lacking self-esteem, uh, lacking knowledge of who they are. And they feel that their minds have, uh, one person used the phrase, my mind has flatlined. You know, I no longer feel I can engage my own well of creativity. Hmm. So what begins to happen is, when people begin to discover their unique vision, there's a unique kind of confidence that emerges. Buddhists call it the lion's roar. It's a kind of a deep subterranean um, confidence in who you are and what you have to offer. So the transition that I see from someone being tentative, from lacking self-esteem, feeling that they're not good enough, to finding a kind of confident creativity is a very beautiful thing to behold. The other thing that I find powerful 
is uh, students gain greater awareness and they talk about how meaningful it becomes in just seeing, just seeing the everyday details of their lives and that they don't need to travel to somewhere exotic in order to awaken their perception. The kind of students who come to your class, is there, are there particular sort of personality types that you look for, or do you take whomever shows up at the door? Well, it's certainly not up to me. You know, people can sign up for classes, and it's, I teach many, many different types of people. I do teach credit college classes. And, you know, for those students, a photography class in the communications department is part of their general requirements. Okay. So they, they have to take the class. In my adult classes, it ranges from 18 to people in their 60s or 70s. In Hawaii, we have a very, very diverse multicultural population. So I teach people from many different cultures. I don't know if there's any unifying factor except that they get excited about photography and its potential. I think it's important to remember everybody today has an excellent camera in their pocket. Ah, yes. People take many, many pictures. And so there's a lot of people who um, are taking pictures regularly. They're using pictures for visual communication and they suddenly recognize, oh my God, I don't know anything about visual communication. (laughs) I don't know anything about photography. This is interesting and exciting for me and I want to learn. So that's one of the driving forces that people are already taking pictures and they really want to become more visually literate. We are going to take a break in a moment. Um, When we come back, I'd like to talk to you more about your own transition from your personal transition from what you describe as photojournalism to fine art. So that's where we will pick up when we return. Folks, my name is Pamela Brewer, and you are listening to Mind Talk and a conversation with David Ulrich, who is the author of Zen Camera, Creative Awakening with a Daily Practice in Photography. We'll be right back. show a series of photographs that, again, you say document the personal transition from photojournalism to fine arts, due in part, you say, to witnessing the Kent State shootings and the effects of Vietnam. Can you say more about that transition? Yes, of course. When I was very young, I was a student at Kent State studying photojournalism. I had a very um, unrealistic notion that photojournalists traveled around the world and just took pictures of exotic places and people. (laughs) And I was um, part of a group of students documenting a protest against the Vietnam War 
on the Kent State campus. On the second day of the demonstration, things heated up, and the end result was National Guard troops fired live armor-piercing bullets into a large crowd of college students. This really shook me up. It was my first experience with death, although many of my friends from high school had gone to Vietnam. Some did not come back. Some came back all shot up. And I recognized in that moment that photojournalism um, was really about paying attention to the social order. My teachers were telling me I had to remain impartial. Journalism is an impartial act. And in that moment, I knew that I could not remain impartial. When I witnessed college students being shot and killed, I felt a very deep and profound anger. And in that moment, I recognized something that I intuited at the time. I was too young to really know it. But I thought, I need to become an artist because being an artist allows you to express your own personal convictions. And I intuited that the only real agent of change for our polarized society was an expansion of consciousness on the part of individuals multiplied into groups of people. And I intuited that art and creativity could become a way to help people become more conscious. And that ultimately, I think, is the aim of Zen, is expansive consciousness. You know, I I think about what journalism is today, uh, at least (laughs) some journalism, um, versus what journalism was taught to be as you were coming up, which, as you said, you were supposed to be impartial. You weren't supposed to put, uh, you know, I think about news anchors and reporters, you weren't supposed to put yourself in the story at all. You were telling a story. And nowadays, it is so much more about commentary than, at least in my view, journalism. Um, Perhaps you were ahead of your time in a good way. Well, we were taught not to lead with our opinion, reporting facts and commenting on those facts. And I think that that line has been dramatically blurred today. And I think that's regretful because journalism can be such a powerful tool to inform people. Talk about the effects of uh, Vietnam on the work that you chose to shoot. I don't think there was a direct effect of the Vietnam War only insofar that it was part of my personal transformation Mm -hmm. because I witnessed the polarization at Kent State. I witnessed the polarization of our country during the Vietnam War. I witnessed friends of mine not coming back from the war. And, you know, again, I I felt that what we needed as a society was to expand our consciousness. So the war in Kent State spurred me to that realization. I think that was the, the principal effect that the war had upon me. Is it your view that one needs to take uh, photographs on a daily basis? Yeah, I think that if, you know, 
What did Malcolm Gladwell say? If you're going to become good at something, you need 10,000 hours of practice. So absolutely, the more you take pictures, the more you're going to come in touch with your own vision. The more you take pictures, the more you're going to be able to take better pictures. I think amateur photographers are arrogant. And by that I mean they actually think that they can get a good picture in a hit-and-run manner. They walk up to a scene, they take a picture, and they walk away. A professional photographer would never do that. A professional photographer knows that they don't know. You know, the Zen attitude of not knowing. So a professional photographer will encounter a scene and take 50 pictures or 100 pictures. And they will explore different angles and different points of view because they recognize they don't know what's going to make the greatest picture. There is a transformation between the world that we see with our eyes and the world that a camera sees. And there's a photographer named Gary Winogrand who once said, I photograph to see how things look when photographed. So we need to take a lot of pictures to, to get to that um, shining picture. Uh, I'm going to say one more thing. I'm a competitive swimmer. I swim every day. And the first 10 laps, I really don't want to be in the water. You know, my body's tight. The water's cold. <clears throat> but after 10 laps, you get in the flow. The endorphins get released. I think it's the same with any activity. We have to engage it for a while before we actually get into the flow. And, and perhaps the freedom of it as well. The freedom of it, yes. When you get into the flow, there's a fluidity, there's a freedom. And it's the same with taking pictures. If you just take one picture, you're never going to engage the subject with any fluidity, any freedom, or any attention. You talk about a photographer, I don't know if I'm going to do her name <clears throat> justice, Lydia Panis. Lydia Panis, yes. You say that she changed the shape of portraiture through her honest and psychologically astute photographs of people. What do you mean by that? What was so unique about her <clears throat> work? When I started looking at Lydia's work, what interested me is by taking portraits of people, sometimes alone and sometimes together, she was able to convey things like family dynamics, family dysfunction, and there's a deep sense in her portraits of a vulnerability, an openness, and an, an, an authenticity where I feel she's really reaching into the soul of the subject. So I became interested in her work and started showing it in classes about four or five years ago. And then one day she contacted me to thank me. And I said, well, why are you thanking me? And she said, you are my first photography teacher. You opened the doors for me as a photographer. This was in the early 1980s, so I didn't remember her by name. <laughs> Interesting. And yet you had such a profound effect on her. <laughs> and her work then later had a profound effect on me. I, I, I laughingly tell my students, um, 
when I walk into the classroom from time to time, I ask them, has the Museum of Modern Art contacted you yet? <laughs> and, and I say, when the Museum of Modern Art contacts you to buy one of your photographs, I will feel, feel fulfilled as a teacher. <laughs> I'm and I'm gonna, wondering. I'm maybe, not going to ask you how many times you have felt fulfilled as a teacher. Um, not many. I think only twice. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but still, that's pretty good. That's actually very good. I would even yes. I would even say excellent. You you say that there are six profound lessons for developing self-expression, and you identify the first one as observation. Right. Right. Why is that the first one? Well, one of the first orders of business, if you will, in photography is to open your eyes and look around. So observation of the world coupled with observation of oneself. So remember that um, your response to the world does not take place out there in the world. It takes place in here. It takes place in your own being. So the activity of observation and recognizing where we feel resonance with the world can be a profound form of awakening. What is surprising to me is it seems so commonsensical, but it's not something that people engage in on a daily basis. So I believe that looking around the world and really trying to be attentive to outer circumstances is going to a make us more attentive to the world and we live in a society that needs that kind of awareness and secondly it's going to help us discover our points of resonance with the world and with other people i often ask my students if you're going to get married do you simply walk out on the street and find the first person of appropriate gender and age and say, okay, you're fine. Or do you wait until you feel a profound resonance with someone? And my statement is you can feel profound resonance with things in the world. You know, unfortunately, I, I like more people to not go out on the street and just pick the first person and say, <laughs> Yeah, you'll do. Come on. Come on. Let's go get married. <laughs> right. Right. David, we're going to take a break and we will be back in just a moment. David, among the lessons that you talk about for developing self-expression, you, you talk about observation and awareness. But the last one that you talk about is presence, even after mastery. Why presence? This is a little bit hard to talk about in words, but I would argue that a great work of art has presence. 
it kind of takes your breath away when you look at it. It, it stuns you. It brings you into a shock of greater awareness. And when we look at the world, we recognize that everything has its own presence. I make a big distinction between spectacle and presence. Our culture seems to be very, very attracted to and even titillated by spectacle. Look at the Super Bowl, for example. Uh, and I think that, that photography, people are often trying to make images that are very contrasty, very full of highly saturated color. And they're trying to shock and titillate people in this sense of spectacle. Whereas I think that the world and people have their own quiet individual presence. And that's part of what we capture with a camera. I also think when we become visual expression, the images that we capture can be a source of the viewer's experience. They're not just referential to things in the world. It's not just a picture, say, of a tree. But the picture itself can awaken presence in a viewer. If you listen to music, music awakens sensations, feelings, even thoughts, and music has a presence. So I believe that's one of the most profound capabilities that a human being has, the ability to come to and experience their own presence and to experience the presence of the things and the people around us. From the way that you describe presence, it now makes even more sense that one could not simply take a picture and walk away, that you really would have to be there and take a series to get at what you're describing right now. Right. I mean, we're a culture that um, is attracted to appearances, you know, we, we like the way things look. We, we get caught up in our own appearance. Um, we look at the surface of things. We look at skin color rather than character. We look at um, superficial beauty rather than, rather than internal presence. So what would it mean to look beneath the surface? I really believe that photography can help us look beneath the surface of things and I think that, that that ability, that skill to look beneath the surface can translate into our public lives. And I think being a good citizen means we need to look beneath the surface, beneath the outer appearance, and really try to understand the dynamics of our world. I wish for a world where people have that kind of quest for understanding common solutions that go along with that. And I actually think that photography can help in that process. I am curious about where folks can go to get more information about the work that you're doing. <clears throat> well, I have a lot of information on my website, including information about my current book, Zen Camera. The website address is www.creativeguide, one word, 
creativeguide.com. And your blog, is that also there, or is that a separate address? My blog has a separate address. It's called theslenderthread.org, but that is also available through the portal of my website. Wonderful. So there are a couple of places that we can go to get more information. I, I thank you so much for your time. The photographs that are in your book are absolutely amazing. I'm sure you've been told that before. But I do thank you for sharing your thoughts and your understanding of the Zen of the camera for those who are willing to go there. Well, thank you, Pamela. This has been a very dynamic conversation. I, I really appreciate the questions you're asking and the depth of those questions. So thank you. My pleasure. And folks, thank you for joining us on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a mental health, medical health, or any other kind of professional. That would include photographers. Mind Talk, <laughs> Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. I'd love to hear your questions or comments about this or any program. Do send an email to me at Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, at mindtalk.org. That's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Mind Talk is on several of your favorite platforms. You can also go to the website uh, for on-demand downloads. And I want you to remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care.